0: Let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 14. This morning we will look at verses 15 through verse 24. John 14:15 through 24. Please listen as I read God's word. If you love me, You will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So read the words of the living God. Father, we ask once again that your spirit, the very spirit, the helper that I just read of, that he will come into this place and that he will help each one of us know your son and obey your son, for that is our created purpose. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen. So as we get started this morning, I'm going to begin with a lesson in logic. It's always good to have a lesson in logic. You know, in past generations, students were taught logic all the way through grade school and high school. You may have noticed that they stopped doing that. And it shows, doesn't it? So here's your logic lesson. In formal logic, there is a type of statement that is called a conditional statement. It is a statement that is in the form of if A, then B. And the way the statement works is when you make the statement if A is true, then B necessarily is true as well. That's how the statement works. If A is true, then B is most certainly true. It cannot not be true. That's how a conditional statement works. For instance, if I say, if it rains tomorrow, my driveway will be wet. That is a statement where I'm saying, if it rains, then my driveway will be wet. So that if it rains, it most certainly means that my driveway will be wet. Now, you can't say that the then statement automatically assumes the if statement. If tomorrow my driveway is wet, does that mean it rained? No. Somebody might have turned on the sprinkler or something, right? There are other ways to get it wet, but I'm saying if it rains, then my driveway will be wet. Or a very similar and related one is if I wash my car today, (laughs) then it most certainly will rain tomorrow. That's kind of how it works, right? Another one would be if I... If the, econo- if, the, if the stock market crashes, I will lose all my savings. Right? You can see how somebody would say that. If the stock market crashes, then I will lose my retirement. Now, I might lose my retirement some other way, but if I have my retirement... I'm sorry, if I lose my... Re- if, I, if the stock market crashes, then I'm saying it's for certain that my uh, retirement will be taken away. It'll be, it'll be gone. That's how a conditional statement works. If this condition occurs, then this following condition will also occur necessarily. Jesus just used a conditional statement in the passage I read to you. Look back at verse 15. The if part, the a part is if you love me. That's the if statement. If that is true, that you love me, Jesus says, then necessarily following that is, you will keep my commandments. What does he mean by love? If you love me, then the outflow of that, the necessary response or consequence of that is you will keep my commandments. We have to understand what he means by love. Love is one of those words that changes meaning over time. We have a lot of those. I just learned uh, this morning that the word bully used to mean, in the Dutch language, lover. Isn't that interesting? That over time, the word bully has gone from lover to what we think of now as the mean, harsh, threatening person. Words change. It used to be that awesome was used to describe something that struck terror into our hearts. We were in awe of something that was terrifying. And in our day, everything is awesome, (laughs) right? Awesome doesn't mean anything anymore. Everything is awesome. Now you got a song stuck in your head. You're welcome. Well, love has undergone similar transformation. Think about how we use the word love. Love largely means something that makes me happy. We were driving in t- today. <laughs> See, part of being a pastor's kid is you're always an illustration possibility. As we're driving in today, my daughter says, I love my shoes. What does she mean by that? my shoes make me happy. Right? We do this all the time. There was a phase when all of my kids, if you did something generous for them or did something that got them really happy, they would say, I love you. Why? Because you're making me happy. That's why I I love you. You have heard me before do my little rant on the five love languages. I don't love that whole concept. See what I just did there? The, the book, it was written with the intent that we would learn about other people and think about how can I show them love. And the, the premise is that there are certain things that people, you know, certain things that we gravitate toward that, that we like to receive love. But what we've done with that is we've used it as a tool to say to somebody else, you're not speaking my love language. See, so we twist it around where it's all about me. That's what we do, and that's certainly what we've done with this word love. I love ice cream because it makes me happy, and we talk about all these different things that we want, and we respond, I love that, I love that, I love that person, I love that person. That is not what love is by definition. Love is outward focus. Love is towards someone else. And it's not about sentimentality. It's not about emotion primarily. It's not a heart feeling primarily. That's how we use it. We talk about being in love. The Bible never says anything about being in love. Being in love assumes you can be out of love. And it's all based on this feeling, I love you until I don't. Now, love says, I am working toward your good. I'm concerned about you. Love is, by definition, outward focused. But it's not this, when God says, I love you, when God says, I love the world, he's not saying, my heart just goes pitter-patter when I think of you. The Bible never describes love in those terms. Jesus says, if you love me, the necessary consequence of that love is, you're going to obey me. You're going to keep my commandments. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you love me, you're going to come on Sunday morning and sing. There are people all over the world today who are going to gather in rooms like this and sing praise to the Lord. That doesn't, that doesn't automatically mean they love him. That is not the test of whether or not someone loves him. Put it that way. Because there are all kinds of people that can sing songs. We, we like to sing. Right? It makes us feel good. I've had people who have left frack come to me and say, well, part of the reason I'm leaving is I just, I just don't, I don't get anything about Sunday morning. I don't get anything out of it. I don't, I don't, I don't feel anything. And I'm tempted to say, you know, that's okay. Because we're not putting together a service so you'll feel something. Who are we here for? Right? We, have co- we call this a worship service. Who are we not here to worship? Us. Right? You're not here to worship me. I'm not here to worship you. We're not here to worship each other. We're here to sing praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's, a, it's about him. So just gathering together and singing songs, we can easily make that about us. Jesus says, if you love me, the necessary consequence of that is you will keep my commandments. It's important to notice that he doesn't say, if you love me, you should keep my commandments. Do you see the difference? He's not actually setting up a, a condition of our love for him. You can think of the proverbial, uh, uh, manipulative wife who says, you know, honey, if you really love me, you would take me on a nice vacation. And now the, the husband's stuck. Because <laughs> uh, if he doesn't do that, then he's communicating to her he doesn't love. That's not what's going on here. He's not saying, if you love me, you should do these things. He's saying, if you, if you really love me, if your, if your love that you say you have for me is real... A necessary outworking of that is, You're, you are going to keep my commandments. Does that make sense? Are you, are you catching that? He's not setting up a should thing. He's saying, this is just how it works. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we know if we love Jesus? Talk is cheap. Words come easy. My guess is almost everybody in this room would say the words, I love Jesus. I love the Lord. And Jesus says, well, if that's true, then the B part of this if-then statement is, you will keep my commandments. We've had an interesting uh, occurrence in pop culture in the last uh, couple of weeks or so. There's a, a man named Kanye West who has professed faith in Christ Now, some of you probably don't have a clue who Kanye West is. He's like the greatest superstar on the planet. Uh, But until this week, I'd never heard a single song that he had written and performed. But he is the self-proclaimed greatest musical artist in the history of mankind. I'm thinking Johann Sebastian Bach might have a few things to, to say about that. But Kanye West, who has made his whole career singing songs that I won't let my kids listen to, and uh, married a woman whose entire brand is narcissism and immodesty. And he has professed faith in Christ. I'm curious. Just raise your hand. Have you listened to his new album? Anybody? Don't be ashamed. No, it's okay. I have my hand's up. I've listened to it. I'm just going to say, side note, if the Christian music industry wrote more songs with lyrics like Kanye's, that would be a good thing. There are some really outstanding lyrics in, in this music. Now I'm not a huge fan of the style, but man, there are some there's some. He does not pull punches. He gets to some serious comments about obedience, uh, sin issues, raising our kids in the faith, not being like the world. It's not it's not light, it's pretty heavy, and it's great, as far as the lyrics go. Now, you can imagine in the Christian pop culture, and the people who like to comment on these things, there are two camps. There are those who, he's in, this is great, he's gonna transform the whole world because he's so popular, this is great, and then there's the other saying, well, no, no, he's gotta prove himself, gotta prove himself, we don't believe any of this, and he's he's got some motive uh, that he's trying to get a whole new audience, a gospel-centered audience, or whatever. How could we possibly know? It seems to me like we should not be surprised that God would bring a sinner to himself, even a very popular one. We should be hopeful and excited and pray for him and and cheer him on. We should not be concerned about his celebrity status. You know, Jesus is not impressed with him, right? Jesus is not impressed with anybody. So we may look at him as a celebrity, but Jesus doesn't. But at the same time, we shouldn't assume the worst. How will we know? At some level, we will never know, maybe, unless he renounces the faith. But what does Jesus here say? Like all the rest of us, if Kanye West loves me, he'll obey me. He'll keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. And that's what we should watch out for. That's what we should be looking for. That's what we should be looking for in, our, in ourselves are we loving him? If A, you love me, then B, you'll keep my commandments. That's what he says. He says it again in verse 21 He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Twice here, he's used the idea of the word keep my commandments. The Greek word that is translated keep here uh, most of the time means to guard. To keep, to protect, to guard. Now we use this phrase, keep the commandments all the time. You're familiar with that. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to guard, to, to keep a commandment? If you think of a prison guard, someone in that day who would, who would have armor on probably and have a, have a sword, have a, have a spear, some, some kind of weapon, he's guarding, he's keeping the prisoner. Well, what is he doing as he he keeps the prisoner, as he guards the prisoner? He's aware of at least two things. He's aware of the threats. He's he's aware of the friends of the prisoner who may be coming to rescue him, to to get him out of prison. Right? So he's aware of what's going on out there, and his attention is very much on the one in the jail cell. He has to know what's going on with that one. He's got to make sure he keeps his eye on him, and he can't fall asleep on the job. Because if he does, then the prisoner might get away, and in the Roman culture, that means the guard is executed in the place of the prisoner. Stakes are pretty high. So he has got to be alert while, he's, while it's his turn, aware of what's coming on the outside and aware of the prisoner. I think that's why the New Testament uses that word to talk about obeying God. This is not a casual thing. This is not something we stumble onto. This is not something that we just sort of do gently as we go. We need to be aware of the commandments and of the threats to the commandments and be on guard. Keep them, protect them, and do them. It's very intentional if we're going to do this. And Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one. Who loves me? This is hard. I mean, you realize the implications already, right? Again, our talk is cheap. Anybody can say we love Jesus. Those are easy words that come out of our mouth. But Jesus says, if so, then you're gonna love me. I mean you're gonna obey me. And then look what he says. Second half of verse 21. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. A consequence of our loving Jesus is the Father loves us. If you've been following along in in John, this makes perfect sense. Everything God the Father has done on planet Earth, from Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. Everything from that point all the way to the coming of Christ, everything is about Jesus. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17? Jesus is there on the mountaintop, and there beside him is Moses and Elijah, two giant pillars of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets summed up in these two men. Who would not want to meet Moses? I'd want to meet him. I still want to meet him. I'm going to meet him someday. This is the great deliverer of Israel. And Elijah. You remember all the things Elijah did? Remember he raised that boy from the dead? And the whole Mount Carmel thing where he called down fire and consumed all the, the sacrifices of the prophets of Baal and all that? He went up in a whirlwind? I want to talk to him about that. That's cool. Here are these two giants of the Old Testament on the mountain, and Peter, the scripture says, knowing not what to say, said, (laughs) I mean, if that is not the perfect description of the apostle Peter, I don't know what it is, knowing not what to say, he said, Lord, it's a good thing that we are here. John, James, come here, we're going to put together these three monuments. I mean, we're, we're going to build one for Jesus, of course, but one for Moses, one for Elijah. Oh, this is so great. Remember, the cloud comes and the voice thunders out of heaven. The apostles wake up and Moses and Elijah are gone. Who's left? Jesus. And the voice thunders out of heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. It's not about Moses. It's not about Elijah. It's about my son Jesus. You listen to him. Everything was created for Him, things in heaven and things on the earth. It's all about Jesus. So Jesus, self aware of this, says, The one who has my commandments and keeps them, my Father loves that person. Because that's why you were created. He is why you were created. Loving Jesus is your reason for being on planet Earth. And if you do what you created to do, God says, I love you. My heart goes pitter-patter for you. That's not that what he means? I'm going to work for your good. Paul picks up on this, doesn't he? Romans eight twenty-eight. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, to those who... Love him. So Jesus says, my father will love you if you keep my commandments. And he says in verse 21, I will love him and will disclose myself to him. The passage I read to you at the beginning of the service was from John 17. We're going to get there eventually. And there, Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know God and to know his son. Do you want to know Jesus more profoundly, more deeply? Please say yes. Yes. I know, you thought it was rhetorical, didn't you? We want to know Jesus, right? Jesus just said, You want me to disclose myself to you? Obey me. Obey me. Someone asked me this week, why you keep talking all this about sentimentality? Why, you know, are you down on emotions? Yes! I told, told Chris this morning, I should have titled this, Jesus' Attack on Sentimentality. It's, when we talk about knowing Jesus, so often this is couched in, in, in sappiness. If you were, were going to read a book, if you're going to pick up one of the latest books on knowing God better, I would almost guarantee you it's going to drive you to more quiet times. We think of knowing Jesus as primarily about praying and having our quiet times. It's not what the Bible says. We've made so much of the relationship with Jesus that we treat it like a husband-wife relationship Where if we just hang out together, our hearts go pitter-patter for one another. Jesus here says, you want to know me? You want me to disclose myself to you? Keep my commandments. I wonder how much of our knowing him is hampered because we take a casual view of obedience. This is, these are his words. I'm not making this up. These are his words. I will disclose myself to the one who has my words and keeps them. Whoops. <laughs> Dramatic effect. Did I get your attention? <laughs> who keeps my commandments. It matters. How much can we learn about Jesus if we strive to please him? Why? Well, at least part of the reason is because, again, we're focused on him. If you have a supervisor at work who is never around, how well do you know that supervisor? Think about the CEO of your company. If you you work for a company that there's just no access to the CEO, you don't know that CEO very well. Right? You might get the monthly newsletters or video blogs or whatever they do, and, and you get the, the, the routine stuff, but you don't really know that person, and you're not concerned so much with pleasing that person. You're more concerned with the immediate supervisor, but the, the CEO, the big guy, uh, you, he has no impact on your life. Or parents who are aloof, parents who don't require obedience. The kids don't really know those parents very well. But what happens when you have a commanding supervisor? You know them because you are conscious of wanting to please them because there are consequences of not doing that. And so you are actively listening to what they say. You are concerned with what they command. You want to receive their blessing and not their discipline. Kids who have commanding parents, especially fathers, they know their fathers. Anecdotally, I see this. As I talk to to folks that had either no father in the home or very uh, remote uh, abdicating fathers, they will tell me, "I, I didn't know my dad very well. But a dad who is there and their presence is felt, they know him. They know what to expect of him. They know what he what pleases him, what it doesn't. That's part of this. Jesus is going to disclose himself to us. We're going to know him better because we're actively attuned to what will please him, and then we see how he works in the world, and in our lives because we're paying attention. Because it matters to us that we obey. He says, "I will disclose myself to the one who keeps my word." The third time he says this in verse twenty-three. Interesting parallel. As I have talked about in the past, we'll see this when we get to the end of John, but three times to Peter, right? Peter, do you love me? Yes? Then sing songs. No, it's not what he says. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do what I'm telling you to do. Take care of my people. Three times, he asks him. Three times here, Jesus says, if you love me, then this. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word. Same thing. If, then, if anyone loves me, the necessary consequence of that is he will keep my word. And my father will love him, repeating himself again, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. I don't know why the translators don't translate consistency, consistently. The word abode, it's exactly the same word as back in verse 2 when he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, abodes. Or we could translate it here, the one who keeps my word, my Father will love him and we will come and make our dwelling places with him. Dwelling place, singular." It's the same word. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, I'm going away, and if I go away, don't worry, I'll come back and take you to be with me, but I'm going to prepare a a room for you. And here Jesus says, anyone who has my word and keeps it, my Father will love him, and we, my Father and I, will come and build our room inside him. If you love Jesus, you'll keep his commandments. If you're keeping his commandments, he and the Father have set up residence in your heart. We who love him are the house of God the Father and God the Son. That's pretty cool. Paul goes on and expands this a little bit in Ephesians, And says that when God enters our hearts through faith, he begins a renovation project. The house that he takes over, when when God the Father and God the Son came to take up residence in your heart, what was the shape of that house? What condition was it in? It was pretty run down, wasn't it? In terms of sinfulness, it was not exactly a wonderful place to live. But he's begun a renovation project and he is in the process of making the house of your heart holy and appropriate for the place of the Father and the Son to live. And eventually, when he comes to take us back to be with him forever, we are going to be completely sanctified and holy and righteous and worthy of the Father and the Son. We are already there positionally he's progressively making us more that way but that's the promise jesus gives if you love me keep my word we will come and dwell in you how are we going to do this i mean if you're not feeling a little uneasy right now i'm not doing my job I'm feeling a little uneasy right now. I've been feeling uneasy all week. And I don't want to be uneasy alone. How do we do this? I mean, these stakes are pretty high. I want the Father and the Son to abide in me, I want Jesus to disclose himself to me. I want the Father to love me. Jesus says, for those things to be true, that means I love him. How do we do that? Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Remember, when Jesus says these words, it is pre cross, pre resurrection and pre-Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit had been poured out on all of God's people. Jesus is saying, that day is coming. For us, it's past. For these folks, it was still future. He says, I'm going to send you another helper. Now, some of your translations have comforter. Some of your translations have counselor. Here is again where language has transitioned over time and we kind of lose the, uh, the, the, the real point. It is the Greek word paraclete, not parakeet. <laughs> he did not promise to send a parakeet nor a pair of cleats. He's promised to send a paraclete. <laughs> the, the root word is kaleo. He didn't promise us in coffee. The Greek word kaleo means to call, to summons. We are summoning you to drink coffee before the service, so you'll stay awake while I'm preaching. Kaleo, call. Kleet comes from call, the word call. Para means alongside. So Jesus is saying, I will ask the Father, and the Father will send someone to come alongside you. Uh, John uses the same word in 1 John, which you ladies have finished up, right? And there it's translated, I wish they'd be consistent, there it's translated advocate. That helps us get a little closer to the meaning. The advocate is, the the term is from the, the courtroom. Think of a defense attorney. Someone who's there beside you in the courtroom, who gives counsel in how to respond to the charges. That's what the paraclete was in antiquity. So the word counselor is giving counsel, not someone who you're going to sit in on their couch and lay down, maybe, while the counselor is writing down all your problems. That's not what it means counselor as someone who's coming alongside you to give you counsel. Or comforter works if you know the old definition of comfort. Again, we think of comfort as just someone who's there patting you on the back and saying, it's going to be okay. or weeping with those who are weeping. But the, the root of comfort is the word fort. In the Latin, that comes from word for strength. In older days, to comfort someone was to give them strength. when when trials came, when troubles came, even when you're being accused in a courtroom, to give them strength to persevere through this. Those are all the different connotations of this word. And what's the context? Jesus says, in order to obey my commands, I'm going to send this paraclete, this one who will come alongside, and he will give you advice on how to do that. On how to please me, how to obey me. And then he gives a special name to this one the Spirit of Truth. We saw last week, Jesus said, I am the truth. And now he's saying, I'm going to send someone to you, or the Father will, that I'll ask him, and he will send this Spirit to you, and this Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. He's going to draw your attention back to me. How can we obey Jesus? By the power of the Holy Spirit who will enable us and teach us and remind us and move us further down the path. It says the world cannot receive this spirit. Unbelievers can't receive this spirit. Why? Because they don't even see him, much less know him. The unbelieving world doesn't care about pleasing Jesus. Only believers do, and the Spirit will enable us. We're going to see the way more about the Spirit as we go on through 14, 15, 16, 17 because Jesus spends a lot of time talking about this Spirit. And we already know the end of the story. We know how this plays out, but put yourself in, in their shoes. This was all new to them. And they, they don't know what to do with this. In fact, they're preoccupied with Jesus saying he's going to leave them. So Jesus comes back and reminds them of what he said, but we see all the way through, up until the cross, the disciples still never get it. They still, still keep asking him boneheaded questions, because they're, they just don't understand. You realize John, the author of this, this book we're reading, John was one of these apostles, that he didn't get it either. So how was he able to write the Gospel of John? The paraclete came to the apostle John down the road after the resurrection. And brought to mind everything Jesus had said so John could say, Oh, yeah. And he wrote it all down and sent it out so that we could read it. He draws us into truth. The apostles are preoccupied with Jesus saying, I'm going to leave you. And in verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 18, Jesus says, Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. These are grown men we so often think of orphans as children. The last week I mentioned, I think it was last week, I mentioned how profound it was when my father died this past January. My mom had died two years ago, and my, my dad dies in January. And I, I, I think I shared this with you way back uh, when, it, when it happened, after we got back from St. Louis. My brother and I joked with each other and said, we're orphans now, you know, because, because both parents are gone. There's a sense in which that's how it feels, even as a man who's certainly not a child anymore. And those of you who have lost both parents, you know what that feels like. There there is something about just this, this sense of security and foundation that no matter what, I know my mom loves me. She really is the only person in the world that, you know, that you just intuitively feel like they, their love, her love for me is unconditional. And I know that if I have a question I can't come up with the answer to, my dad's got the answer. You have to believe that as a kid. You know, even though as a dad I know that's not always true when my kids ask, my dad's different. He did know everything. And for that voice to be gone, even as a grown man, there's still something that you just feel like, ah, is my world unstable now, that my mom's not there to love me and my dad's not there to counsel me? That's what these disciples were were feeling when Jesus says, I'm leaving. Jesus says, don't worry. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What does he mean? He may be talking about the second coming, but I don't think so. I think he's talking about the resurrection because of what he says next. After a little while, the world will no longer see me you realize that after the cross, Jesus does not show up and appear before any unbelievers? At least not publicly. The world's not going to see me anymore. But you will see me. He's talking to his disciples there. You will see me. Because I live, you will live also. I'm going to die. They don't get it yet. I'm going to die, but I will come back to life. And that is proof positive for you that you will die, but you will also come back to life. This, I'm sure, was very comforting to them later on. And in that day, when you see me risen from the dead, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Nothing about Christianity is true or worth our time if Jesus is still dead. Don't ever come back to this building again if you're convinced that Jesus is still dead. We're wasting our time, it's a sham. Everything about what we believe stands or falls on Jesus being physically, bodily alive. But if he is alive, then everything he said is true. And he has sent the paraclete to us who is leading us into truth. Who is helping him obey? And if, we, oh, if we love him, we will obey him, and if we obey him, the Father loves us, He loves us, and he has come to make his dwelling in us. It's true. Do you love him? I'm glad you didn't say anything, because it's not about our words. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to show that love through obedience. May that be our heart's desire and true of everyone in this room. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are sobering words. but they are words that you spoke and words that carry great promise and hope for us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that our following you, our love for you would not be in word only, but in word and deed. That this morning we would not be hearers of the word, but doers of the word Lord, may we be people who genuinely love you with all of our heart and that will necessarily lead to obeying you. May we guard and protect your commandments. Father, this morning I pray for Kanye West. I pray that his profession of faith is real and true and that he will love you and obey you and that he will be a witness to millions the grace of Jesus Christ. But you're not impressed with him and you're not impressed with us. You simply call each of us to the same task, to love you and to show that love through obedience. May it be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.